1547, Spanish chronicler Pedro Cieza de Leon explored the northern coast of what is now Peru. After crossing miles of arid coastal deserts, de Leon was astonished when he arrived in the fertile Lambayeque Valley and discovered the ancient city of a great civilization. Dozens of enormous pyramids towered over the city's remains. As de Leon wandered through the city's winding streets, there was an unsettling absence among the great adobe buildings. There were no people, no bodies, no evidence of any occupation at all. The city was completely abandoned. When he craned his neck up at the pyramids, he noticed they were crumbling and burnt, not decayed by time, but seemingly intentionally destroyed. De Leon was dumbfounded. What had happened to the seemingly robust civilization? What tragedy transformed their pyramids into burnt husks? And most importantly, where did everybody go? Hi, I'm Richard. And I'm Molly. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing. In each episode, we examine historic disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it disappeared, we're looking for it. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. A new episode comes out every other Monday. Today, we're looking for the inhabitants of the lost city of Tucume. Tucume is located in the Lambayeque Valley in northern Peru, which contains the ruins of over 250 mud-brick pyramids. Tucume itself was home to 26 of them. It contains the largest concentration of pyramids in South America. Founded in approximately 1100 AD, Tucume flourished for over 400 years. But sometime around 1530, Tucume's thousands of inhabitants disappeared without a trace. The burnt remains of their pyramids stood ghostly and abandoned on the arid landscape. In the Zanya Valley, a part of the greater Lambayeque Valley system, evidence of irrigation canals date back to 5700 BC. The civilizations that grew in this region developed advanced techniques of civilization, such as crop cultivation, gold and silver work, pottery, metallurgy, and weaving. Though we can construct a crude understanding of these ancient civilizations, it's difficult to formulate a comprehensive vision of their culture as they didn't possess a written language. Historians have named the civilization that built the pyramids in Tucume the Lambayeque, after the Lambayeque Valley where the pyramids are located. The Lambayeque are also commonly referred to as the Sikan people. Although the two names are often used interchangeably, there is some debate over whether or not they were two separate groups. Unlike the Lambayeque, the Sikan were not confined to the Lambayeque Valley. They may have been a different group altogether. But for the purpose of this podcast, we have chosen to side with the historians and architects who treat them as a single culture. The Lambayeque people succeeded the Moche civilization, which reigned on the northern coast of what is now Peru from about 100 to 700 AD. 
the Moche built elaborate pyramid-like structures of their own. But the Moche people abandoned the Zanya Valley by 700 AD. This set the stage for the Lambayeque people to rise to prominence. The origin story of the Lambayeque people was passed down orally for generations. It was finally written down and recorded by a Spanish Jesuit priest named Miguel Cabea de Valboa in his 1586 book, Miscellanea Antarctica. According to legend, Nilam, a mythic hero and the first ruler of Lambayeque, arrived on the northern Peruvian coast sometime around 750 AD on a fleet of balsa wood rafts. He founded the city of Chote near the mouth of the river Fakisyanga. After Nilam's death, his followers dispersed across the land. They spread Lambayeque culture throughout the valley and eventually occupied a territory of nearly 5,500 square miles. Nilam's dynasty is said to have lasted for 12 generations. The last of these legendary kings was named Fempeyek. A demon tricked Fempeyek into moving a sacred Yampayek idol out of the Temple of the Moon, where it had resided since Nilam had placed it there himself. When Fempeyek went to move the idol, he was met with the full force of the god's wrath. The gods punished Fempeyek with a great flood that lasted for 30 days. The flood was followed by periods of intense droughts and flooding. The Lambayeque people all blamed Fempeyek for this catastrophe. Holy priests seized Fempeyek, bound him by his hands and feet, and threw him in the ocean to drown. And thus Nilam's line ended. The people of the Lambayeque Valley were thrown into chaos. Perhaps Fempeyek's death explains the disappearance of the Lambayeque people. Unlikely. If Fempeyek were a real king, his reign would have been around 1100 AD. The Lambayeque people didn't disappear until the 1500s. Obviously, that would have been long after Fempeyek's alleged reign. And in 1100 AD, the Lambayeque were still flourishing. They had a singular cultural obsession with building pyramids that took the previous Moche people's monumental constructions to a whole new level. By the time their civilization abruptly disappeared around 1500, the Lambayeque had built over 250 mud-brick pyramids in the Lambayeque Valley. There have been over a dozen pyramid-building civilizations throughout history, but none of their pyramids quite resembled those of the Lambayeque in terms of form or function. Most pyramids tend to serve a single purpose. For example, the Egyptian pyramids served as tombs for royalty, while the Aztec and the Mayan pyramids were sites for religious ceremonies. In contrast, the Lambayeque pyramids served multiple functions. It's true that religious ceremonies and burials were conducted at the Lambayeque pyramids, but they were primarily a place of residence for the Lambayeque elite. The tops of the Egyptian pyramids had a triangular pointed shape, but the tops of the Lambayeque pyramids were wide and flat. This enabled the Lambayeque to build large mansions filled with many rooms atop their pyramids. The only way to access the tops of the pyramids was through long ramps. Additionally, there were rooms about halfway up to control access to the top. These rooms may have been used as guard stations. The lords living atop the pyramids had fully functioning homes. 
Archaeologists have discovered evidence of large kitchens with remains of seeds, bones, charcoal, and pots. Archaeologists also found layers and layers of food scraps, indicating that generations of people lived on top of the pyramids. Some of this food has been identified as llama and fish. These foods were traditionally reserved for the rich and indicate the wealth and status of the pyramid dwellers. But why did the Lambayeque elite want to live atop pyramids? It can't have been just because they wanted unusually grand mansions. They may have had religious motivations for living in pyramids. Ancient Peruvians believed powerful gods lived in the mountains. These gods could be benevolent and generous, but they could also be destructive. Some believe that the Lambayeque built their pyramids in order to replicate the mountains. They hoped to capture the mountains' power in order to protect and bestow favor upon their people. If the pyramids were a form of protection, what were the Lambayeque protecting themselves from? What was so frightening to them that their entire way of life was centered on building these monuments? To answer that question, we need to examine the site of the first major city of the Lambayeque people. Later named Batan Grande, or Flat Anvil by the Spanish, the Lambayeque people's first great city was likely built around 800 AD. At one point, the city of Batan Grande had 17 pyramids. To put that in perspective, most pyramid sites have only two or three. The largest pyramid discovered in Batan Grande is known now as Huaca Corte. That pyramid's base covers about 820 square feet. Although it would take over 2,000 people to simply build the bricks required for one of these pyramids, and thousands more to actually construct it, a pyramid would only house the family of one Lambayeque elite and his servants. Probably no more than a few dozen people in all. Commoners were relegated to small huts on the city's outskirts. Baton Grande flourished for almost 300 years. However, around 1020, Baton Grande suffered a terrible drought that lasted over 30 years. Although we now understand that this sort of extreme weather is a symptom of powerful El Nino patterns, the citizens of Baton Grande saw this as a sign of the gods' anger toward them. As the earthly representatives of the gods, the elites atop Baton Grande's pyramids had failed to protect their people. Something drastic needed to be done. In normal circumstances, valuable items or animals were sacrificed to the gods in order to please them. But extraordinary situations, like a devastating drought, called for human sacrifice. Human sacrifice didn't always require killing the victim. The Lambayeque gods didn't actually need the victims to die. They were simply nourished and strengthened by human blood. Priests could typically cut open a victim and drain some of their blood for the gods. In normal circumstances, this would be enough to appease divine rage. But when a situation was so dire that immense quantities of blood were needed, then full-blown human sacrifice was necessary. And decades of drought with little to no relief in sight was certainly dire enough to turn to this last resort. But the human sacrifice didn't work. The drought continued and hunger and hardship continued to batter the land. The Lambayeque people needed to take even more drastic steps to save themselves from the wrath of the gods. Ancient Peruvians used fire to purify places touched by evil. Seemingly forsaken by the gods, 
Baton Grande seemed to be infected with something so terrible that the region continued to suffer. Thus, between 1050 and 1100, in a last-ditch effort to reconcile the evil that fell upon them, the penitent Lombayeke people set all the pyramids in Baton Grande on fire. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, let's continue our story. By 1050 AD, the Lambayeque people were willing to do anything to end a devastating 30-year drought. In what may have been a final and desperate attempt to purify the land, they set all of the pyramids of the ruling elite in Baton Grande on fire. The heat was so great that it melted the stones within the pyramid's walls. The flames were visible for miles. But this was the price the Lambayeque elite had to pay to appease the gods. It's important to remember that the Lambayeque didn't see these environmental catastrophes as random bad luck. They believed that with enough effort, they could ensure the gods' happiness and secure prosperity for their people. Hmm. The wrath of the gods? Terrible weather? Angry mobs rebelling against their leaders? Could this be the historical basis for the story of King Fempeek's death at the hands of an angry mob for losing the gods' favor? The dates do line up, although there isn't any evidence to suggest a clear correlation. All that we know is that the Lombayeke interpreted the severe drought as a sign of the gods' displeasure. Perhaps this was the reason they set the Baton Grande pyramids alight and then fled the city entirely. With Baton Grande abandoned, the Lembayeque center of power shifted to Tukumi, just a few miles south of Baton Grande. Although their efforts to please the gods at Baton Grande had failed, the Lembayeque people seemed determined to redouble their efforts at Tukumi by building bigger and better pyramids. The archaeological record tells us that major construction on the pyramids in Tukumi began shortly after Baton Grande was abandoned. With 26 pyramids in total, Tukume has the largest concentration of any site in South America. These 26 pyramids are tightly packed in a one-square-mile area circled around a mountain called Laraya. Archaeologists think the mountain had religious significance. Since the Lambayeque believed gods resided in the mountains, building so close to Laraya would mean being closer to the gods. The Lambayeque set to work building more pyramids than ever before. These new pyramids at Tukume were bigger and more elaborate than the old pyramids at Baton Grande. The largest pyramid at Tukume is built directly into the side of Laraya. It was massive. Although its relatively low height reached a paltry 60 feet, its base was shockingly over 2,100 feet long. Even today, it remains the longest known adobe structure in the entire world. This pyramid is most likely where the Takume's leader resided. Archaeologists believe the other 25 pyramids were probably occupied by leaders from other settlements across the valley. Although we don't know what Takume's population was, as a religious and administrative center, it would have had the largest concentration of people in the region. And there's no way that Takume's grandeur didn't go unnoticed by neighboring civilizations. Sometime around 1375, the militaristic Chimu ruler, Nansingpinko, conquered the Lambayeque people and absorbed them into his empire. 
the Chimu created the second largest empire in the history of the ancient Andes cultures. There is little evidence to show that any major changes took place in the Lambayeque culture or at Tucume during the period where they were ruled by the Chimu. However, many Lambayeque artists were relocated to the Chimu capital of Chanchan. The artifacts discovered at Chanchan show that the Chimu actually adopted many Lambayeque cultural and artistic practices. The Lambayeque were only under Chimu jurisdiction for approximately a hundred years until the great and powerful Inca Empire conquered the Chimu around 1470. But while there were changes in leadership at Tecume, the pyramids persisted as centers of power for the Lambayeque elite. The large pyramids were important for governing and administration, but significant religious ceremonies took place in the small, unassuming Temple of the Sacred Stone, a ground-level building near Tecume's entrance. This was where worshippers offered sacrifices to the gods. For most of Tecume's 400-year history, there's very little evidence of human sacrifices in the archaeological record. Yet shortly before Tecume was abruptly abandoned in the early 1500s, residents sacrificed an unparalleled number of people. Archaeologists have discovered evidence of a whopping 119 human sacrifices at Tecume. Most of them occurred during the city's final years. They may have even occurred in the final days before the city's downfall. Something terrible drove the Lambayeque people to commit human sacrifice, but we don't know what. And the human sacrifice didn't work. By 1530, the Great Pyramids of Tecume were burned and abandoned, and the Lambayeque were gone. It wasn't until 1987 400 years later, that a chance visit from a Norwegian adventurer and ethnographer named Thor Heyerdahl set the wheels in motion to finally uncover Tecume's secrets. Born in 1914 in Lavik, Norway, Heyerdahl became interested in Polynesian culture at a very early age. He first gained fame for his 1947 Kontiki expedition when he was in his 30s. He sailed a balsa wood raft from Peru to French Polynesia. The journey took 101 days, and he traveled a total distance of 5,000 miles. The expedition's success demonstrated that it was possible for these rafts to travel over long distances on the Pacific Ocean. Despite a general consensus that Polynesia was originally settled by people from the Asian mainland, Heyerdahl was intrigued by the possibility of contact between ancient indigenous South Americans and Polynesians. Heyerdahl visited Peru in 1987 to research evidence of balsa raft navigation in pre-Hispanic indigenous Peruvian cultures. After discovering evidence of long-distance balsa raft travel in the Moche city of Sipan, Heyerdahl immediately thought of the Lambayeque civilization. He remembered the origin story of Nilam and his people sailing to the Lambayeque Valley on balsa rafts. Maybe there was a kernel of truth in the legend. But without any written records, the only way to get the answers he sought was through archaeological research. Luckily, Heyerdahl's colleague, Walter Alva, learned of his interest in the Lambayeque civilization. Alva suggested that Heyerdahl investigate the pyramids at Tecume. Tecume's unexplored pyramids presented a potential treasure trove of information. Once he set his eyes on Tecume, Heyerdahl was transfixed. 
He wanted to know everything about the mysterious civilization that built Tukume's pyramids. Who were the people who built these pyramids? What caused them to abandon Tukume? And where did they all go? The only way to know for sure was to do what nobody had been willing or able to do before. Organize an archaeological excavation at Tukume. After getting permission to conduct a dig from Peru's foreign minister, Heyerdahl secured a contract between Peru's National Institute of Culture and the Contiki Museum in Norway. But there was still a long road ahead before any shovels hit the dirt. Although Heyerdahl had permission to dig at Tukume, he had to combat the terrifying reputation of a place that the locals now called Purgatorio, a place where evil spirits dwelled. In 1988, when Heyerdahl started planning his dig at Tukume, Peru was going through a crisis. Its currency was wildly inflated, and a terrorist group called the Shining Path was causing mayhem throughout the country. Communication systems in Peru were badly affected, and its infrastructure was suffering as well. Terrible El Nino floods washed out the Pan-American highway that once led to Tukume, and there was no money available to repair it. Making matters even more difficult, there was nowhere to stay in Tukume. The nearest lodging was 18 miles south in the city of Chiclayo, and when Heyerdahl arrived in Tukume by taxi, he initially ended up stranded and unable to call and request a taxi back to his hotel. Thieves had stolen the entire telephone line connecting Tukume to the outside world, and the Peruvian government had little interest in replacing it. The moment they put up a new line, thieves or terrorists from the Shining Path would take it down and sell it for its copper components. To solve the logistical problem of getting to and from Tukume, Heyerdahl's colleague, Guillermo Ganosa, gave him an old trailer so he could base himself in Tukume's village. But things didn't get any easier. After looking into more established residency, Heyerdahl bought a plot of land from an elderly couple so he could build a house. However, his building materials kept getting stolen, and his plans for stabilizing an area for his research faltered. It turned out to be an inside job. The watchman Heyerdahl had hired to stand guard conspired with a friend to steal them at night. Heyerdahl found himself in a place where it seemed no one could be trusted. Villagers sympathetic to Heyerdahl told him that in order to get along with the people of Tukume, he had to win the trust of the more than 20 brujos, traditional healers, who took up residence in the area around the pyramids. Heyerdahl enlisted the aid of the village priest and the mayor, who claimed to be a descendant of ancient Tukume's pyramid builders. Along with the renowned brujo, Santos Vera, these men became some of Heyerdahl's greatest allies during his dig. Winning the brujos' trust proved to be especially crucial since they were able to help Heyerdahl overcome the superstitions that were a part of life in Tukume's village. The pyramids were an important place for locals. Many superstitions encompassed them, and various rumors made them out as places of great mystique and spirituality. Villagers believed a golden duck and her 12 golden ducklings lived inside a pyramid that was on Heyerdahl's plot of land. Rumor had it that the gold duck often waddled through the village with its offspring. But when they tried to catch it, the duck escaped and disappeared back into the pyramid. When Heyerdahl later hired about 100 villagers for the dig, he learned that they believed he had sold the duck and used the earnings to employ them. 
a local woman even opened a bar in the village called the Golden Duck, which was a hit with those involved in the excavations. But not all of the rumored inhabitants of the nearby pyramids were so friendly. Allegedly living in a large pyramid whose walls rose right next to the village's main schoolyard was a woman who was so beautiful that men died if they looked upon her. Even more dangerous was a sea monster that lived within La Raya, the mountain at the center of ancient Takume's pyramids. It once lived in a lake that had disappeared and now supposedly lived within the mountain. The monster was a giant rayfish, or Raya, which was how the mountain came to get its name. It may seem outlandish, but these superstitions were a fabric of daily life in Takume. The locals still referred to the pyramids as Purgatorio and genuinely believed that evil spirits lived within the enormous structures. There was also an incident of real-world violence that cast a pall over the site. When Walter Alva and a draftsman came to map the dig site, they discovered the victim of a gruesome murder. Nobody was able to identify the man who had been killed. He was unknown in the village, and no one had been reported missing. The police were unable to come up with any answers. No one spoke of the incident again, but it only added to the ominous atmosphere surrounding Takume. Although Heyerdahl gained the villagers' trust, their superstitions and their fear of the local terrorist group Shining Path made it exceedingly difficult to recruit any of them to work on his dig. He was able to recruit a few brave villagers to serve as night watchmen. But after only one night in the plywood hut Heyerdahl had built for them, they refused to return. They claimed demonic spirits had come during the night and tried to strangle them. Even the highly regarded Brujos were unable to convince the men to return to the hut. The men only came back after the village priest, Padre Pedro, sprinkled holy water on the hut's walls. This seemed to keep the spirits at bay, and Heyerdahl was able to recruit enough local labor to finally commence the dig. Professional archaeologists from universities in Peru and abroad began to flock to Tucume. There was just one problem. They had no idea where to start. At sites such as Sipan, professional tomb robbers provided a roadmap of sorts. While it was tragic that they stole priceless artifacts, the places they robbed indicated areas of potential historical value for archaeologists. Takume's fearsome reputation proved to be a double-edged sword. Although it had prevented robbers from plundering anything beyond the site's outskirts, there was also no indication of where they should begin to dig. Our story will continue in a moment, after the break. And now, back to Gone. The dig at the site of the lost city of Takume finally officially commenced on August 28, 1988, under the supervision of Walter Alva and Arne Skjolsvold of the Kontiki Museum. They chose to begin excavations at one of the larger pyramids, which they dubbed Huaca One. Almost immediately after their trowels began to scrape the dirt, the project suffered another setback. Walter Alva was recalled to his former dig at Huaca Rajada Sipon, another archaeological site in Peru. Alva's old colleagues made an incredible discovery when they found the tomb of a 1,500-year-old nobleman they dubbed the Lord of Sipon. Alva thought he would only be gone for a few days, 
But as soon as the Lord of Sipan was transported to the Hans Brüning Museum, Alva uncovered another tomb, and another. Alva wasn't returning to Takume anytime soon. As his replacement, Alva sent Hugo Navarro, a younger archaeologist. Hugo's strategy was to divide the site into slices proportional to the dimensions around it. Instead of excavating deeper, one-meter squares, Navarro elected to dig shallower, 100-meter squares. After digging down to a depth of a meter, they came across absolutely nothing. No trace of human activity appeared in the archaeologists' sieves. All they found was silt that had descended from the pyramid's walls as they eroded into the valley. However, these shallow excavations still hinted at the fate of Takume's people. If they had been killed by outside invaders or some internal disaster, such as fire or disease, there likely would have been some form of remains in this initial layer of dirt. This confirmed that Takume had been willingly abandoned. But there was still no indication of where its people could have gone. In the search for physical evidence, Navarro decided to change tactics. He chose to dig a five-meter test trench along the wall of the pyramid where they had begun the dig. They still found nothing, but Navarro didn't give up. He moved the dig from the north to the south side of the pyramid. He soon discovered the remains of a buried wall outlined what appeared to be a huge plaza. Immediately below the surface, he found a complex of low adobe walls enclosing tiny rooms that were much too small for habitation. Some of these rooms contained the corpses of baby girls, all about a year old. These bodies were most likely sacrificial offerings and hinted at the horrific series of at least 119 human sacrifices that took place during Takume's final days in the early 1530s. Navarro's team of archaeologists discovered additional burial niches, all filled in with sand and a mixture of ash, broken ceramics, rags, shells, bone, and carbon. This mixture of sand and human artifacts meant the people of Takume had filled in the niches. If it had happened naturally over the passage of time, the niches would have contained the same silt as Navarro's previous excavations. But who were they hiding the artifacts from? Inca conquerors? Or perhaps Spanish invaders? As they continued to dig along the upper layer of Takume's ruins, it was clear there would be no clear answers. And although Hugo Navarro had filled in admirably in Walter Alva's absence, it was clear that the project needed reinforcements. Heyerdahl brought in Alfredo Narvaez from Peru's National University in Trujillo and Daniel Sandweiss of the Carnegie Mellon Natural History Museum in the United States to work as co-directors of the Takume Archaeological Project. They were also joined by Sandweiss's wife, Peruvian archaeologist Maria del Carmen, and additional Peruvian and foreign archaeologists, as well as 20 students from universities in Lima and Trujillo. Official headquarters were set up at the entrance to the pyramid area, and a temporary museum was erected to exhibit the now constant flow of objects that were being unearthed. Finally, the project in Takume was running on all cylinders. It seemed to be only a matter of time until the mystery of Takume could be solved. The dig at Takume lasted for five years, eventually coming to a close in 1993. 
Thanks to the efforts of Heyerdahl and his team, archaeologists were able to create a more complete picture of Takume's history. Through their excavations, they were able to determine that Takume was established as a political and religious center after the fall of Bataan Grande. They were also able to discover that it was conquered by the Chimu in 1375 and then by the Inca in about 1470. They were able to piece together the story of Takume's final days, during which a series of human sacrifices was conducted in an attempt to convince the gods to stop the advance of the Spanish conquistadores. With no evidence to indicate that the Spanish or any other outside elements either killed or forced Takume's people out of the city, Heyerdahl and his team concluded that it was willingly burned and abandoned. But one massive question still remained. Where did they all go? Local traditions suggest that they might have relocated to the hamlet of Tucume Viejo, which is just north of the original city. However, Tucume Viejo was far too small to support the many thousands of people estimated to have lived in Tucume at its height. Although some of Tucume's population may have resettled there, it's clear there wasn't a mass migration to this tiny village. But even though the Spanish may not have physically forced the citizens of Tecume to abandon their city, they could have indirectly reduced its population. The deadliest thing about the Spanish wasn't their weapons. It was their diseases. In 1524, a massive smallpox epidemic originating from the Spaniards' contact with the indigenous people of Panama swept south and decimated Peru's indigenous population. Pizarro's forces wouldn't even set foot in Peru for another eight years, but they were already causing chaos throughout the region. Some scientists estimate that this epidemic killed nearly 75% of the Inca Empire's 10 million citizens, and it's entirely possible that the people of Tecume were similarly affected. During the initial excavations at Tecume, when Hugo Navarro discovered the evidence of human sacrifices, part of the fill that had covered their burials was composed of ash. It's certainly possible these ashes were the remains of Tecume's citizens who had died during the smallpox epidemic. During Heyerdahl's explorations around the region surrounding Tecume, he discovered a massive ancient oven the locals refer to as El Orno. This oven was too large to effectively bake food. It could only serve one purpose, cremation. Unfortunately, without any way to conclusively determine the cause of death or date the ashes discovered at Tecume, there can't be any conclusions drawn regarding how many citizens actually remained in Tecume when it was abandoned. If this theory is correct, and disease had vastly reduced Tecume's population, they would have been even more vulnerable to Spanish attack. There's a significant chance they wouldn't want anyone to know where they went so that the Spanish couldn't find them. That makes sense. After hearing of the horrors the Spanish unleashed upon the Inca people living further north, the people of Tecume might have wanted to keep their whereabouts hidden. But the Lambayeque people couldn't hide their valley from the Spanish for long. In 1536, Pizarro granted an encomienda of Tecume to Juan Roldan and Juan de Osorno, which was described as, quote, the right to enjoy the tributes of Indians within a certain boundary, with the duty of protecting them and seeing to their religious welfare, end quote. 
While it wasn't a grant of land, an encomienda was essentially the assignment of oversight over a specific region. It's unclear how extensively Osorno and Roldan implemented their so-called responsibilities over Tecume, but the presence of an early church at Tecume Viejo shows there was some effort to convert the people who remained in the region to Christianity. We don't know when this church was built, but its presence does connect to the oral history of indigenous people being burned atop Tecume's pyramids if they refused to convert. This church could also answer the question of why the people of Tecume decided not to build a new pyramid city. Perhaps their population had been so reduced by Spanish diseases that they simply lacked the manpower. Or, with so many of the indigenous people being converted to Christianity, maybe they no longer believed that pyramids held any sacred power. And even if they still believed in their old mountain gods, maybe they were too afraid of being burned alive to worship them. That makes sense. But we have to consider one more thing. What if the people of Tecume didn't remain in Peru at all? Considering their foundation myth of King Nilam arriving on a fleet of balsa rafts, maybe they left their city by boat. It's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Much to his pleasure, Heyerdahl did discover a giant frieze at Tecume depicting the Lambayeque sailing on balsa rafts. They certainly could have maintained their sailing prowess throughout their history. With their seafaring traditions intact, it could be that the people of Tecume decided to leave Peru entirely in search of faraway lands. But if they did, we have no idea where they went. No one has found any evidence of the Lambayeque people surviving on another continent. So this certainly isn't our most likely theory. Agreed. While I'd love to believe they sailed away on a fleet of balsa rafts and founded a new civilization, I don't think that's what happened. So where did the people of Tecume go? Most likely after Tecume's population was decimated by smallpox, its remaining citizens dispersed across the Lambayeque Valley in an effort to escape Spanish conquest. It seems most likely that a majority of the Lambayeque population that survived the smallpox epidemic settled in Tecume Viejo and the rest found refuge wherever they could. Whether they were wiped out by plague, dispersed across the Lambayeque Valley, attempted to sail to new lands or something else entirely, their legacy lives on. Before he stopped his excavations, Heyerdahl founded the Tecume Vivo program, which implemented modern infrastructure in the modern village of Tecume and the surrounding area. Excavations at Tecume continue on to this day. We're still learning about the Tecume's mysterious history, and we may yet discover conclusive evidence about what happened to the people of Tecume. Although the final whereabouts of the people of Tecume may forever be a mystery, their history no longer has to be. Thanks for tuning into Gone. If you like the show, you can subscribe for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps the show. You can tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, or at Parcast.com. 
Just because something is missing doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Alex Benedon and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.